I can't decide if this is the middle episode of three or the first of two. To quote Björk herself, my first album didn't come out until I was 27, which in pop years is late, you know. So if she's going to blithely ignore everything we talked about in the last episode, perhaps we should too, and say it starts here. Or maybe the distinction is that she never felt any of those were her albums. So today, Björk takes control, and this is the first of two episodes in which we try to work out what happened. But before we get started, let me unpick temporary fandoms a bit for any new listeners. I'll try and keep it short. So, we choose an artist, for example Björk, and we listen to their entire discography. Sometimes we can wrap it up in one episode, like when we listen to Neutral Milk Hotel or McCluskey, and other times it may take as many as six, like when we listen to the complete works of the four. We kick off with a short introduction to the albums before letting all hell break loose in a roundtable discussion. It's a great way to celebrate the artists you love or to explore those you want to know more. You can find it all at tempfans.com in your usual podcast places and if you'd like to listen to a special edit of the show cut together with the music we're talking about, check out the show notes and follow the links to Spotify. You get the gist. Let's get on with it as we welcome our guests and head to Iceland to explore the work of Björk. Welcome to Temporary Fandoms. Um, and we're sort of continuing the work we started in the last episode, which, um, I don't know, see that one as a prequel, and this would be the sequel. Anyway, the last episode, we worked our way through Icelandic indie post-punk pop band, I guess, the Sugar Cubes, and some other bits of Björk, Björk, Björk's early stuff. So... No prizes for guessing what we're doing today. Uh, the guests have changed slightly. Although, obviously, Nick's still here. Nick, Nick. Hey, Hello. how are you? I'm, I'm absolutely fine, Ewan. Oh, yeah, I'm Ewan. And I'm Nick. <laughs> as an aside, um, I'm just going to mention this up front. Um, as we record this, this is the first day of England's involvement in Euro 2020, the delayed Euro 2020, I may have limited myself to two shandies and a small bottle of beer. Um, not all of us did. <laughs> so joining us for the first time, uh, not been celebrating the football, I don't think, but joining us from over in the Americas, the colonies, it's it's Jeffrey McDonald. Jeffrey, hey, how are you? All right. How are you doing? We are doing great. Thank you very much. Don't look so frightened. It will be fine. Um, I'm rejoining us from the Sugar Cues episode. Um, taking us through the albums of Björk is Liam Maloney, um, electro musician, uh, lecturer, and co-host of the, oh, I always get this wrong, Dance About Dancing About, Dancing about Architecture, which um, is also hosted on Beat Rehab, which is where we also live. Liam Maloney, hello, Liam. Hey, I um, I did, I personally didn't drink today. I thought I'll come in with a clear head, uh, but I also don't like watch any of this sporting um regatta. Is it a regatta when it's football? It's a regatta, yeah, yeah, some form of gala. I don't, I don't engage with that stuff at all. It's a sport gala, yeah, sport lovely. gala. Um, so Liam, you're the one who's going to be taking us through the the albums, um, Bjork's work over the next two episodes. 
in today's episodes, what albums are we covering, please? Um, oh, so we are, weirdly, we are starting again at the beginning, but we're starting with her debut album, which isn't her debut album by a long shot, but officially debut. Then we're going to drag ourselves through the stuff in post, which is going to, I'm sure, be a, an interesting natter. And then maybe caught a little bit of controversy with the third choice on this list. And I, I, can, I can feel the daggers coming my way already, <laughs> um, which will be Telegram. But there's a reason we're doing Telegram, and hopefully that'll become clear. And then we're going to jump into the delicious homogenic and then to um, one of my absolute faves at the end, which is Vespertine. So we're going to kind of do the first half of her um, solo oeuvre, I suppose. Oeuvre. Perfect. Um, when we're when we were chatting, organizing this in advance, we sort of settled on the sugar cubes was going to be pre. This episode was going to be peak Bjork, and the next one was post Bjork. Although this is the one that actually has the album post on it, so at some point there may be some form of confusion, probably for me. Anyway, there's not much more to say. Nick has said everything in the introductions about patrons and whatnot. Um. Oh, um, we have various ways you can support us. Find out on tempfans.com. Um, at the moment, we have one patron, um, one regular uh, funder, um, and that's Nick's sister. So please, come on. Someone must want to keep the lights on at Temporary Fandoms Tower. Um, my wife did suggest that she joined, became a patron, but we have a joint bank account. So just be like, I'm paying myself. Anyway, we're going to get cracking. And the next voice you hear will be Liam's after this. So here we are at debut. We're actually five, six albums in now, but it's still called debut. The album basically holds two kinds of tracks. In 1993, apparently there was only two kinds of music that Bjork was capable of doing, if you break it down, really. We get the kind of 808 state-inspired stuff, the kind of big dance bangers like Crying or More to Life, which was recorded at uh, Nikki Holloway's Milk Bar. And obviously the kind of the huge hits like uh, Big Time Sensuality and the kind of beloved-esque One Day. And these kind of fulfill her dance music credential. All of which are actually great tracks it's better than i recall it being this record the other kind of track that she does the other type that she's capable of doing at this point it seems is this kind of trip hoppy almost sorry to say it coffee table smoothness stuff like human behavior and airplane kind of hint at this sort of trip hoppy more chiba-esque vibe but there's also other hints in there, particularly hints of kind of James Bond themes. She does kind of obsess with all this Bond theme stuff, really. And even when it comes to the re-release of debut a year later, when it's got a particular kind of amount of um, power and cachet behind it, where people are really embracing this album, it includes the track Play Dead from the film Young American, Never Seen It, but interestingly, it's written in collaboration with David Arnold, who will go on to be the score, kind of lead guy for most of the Pierce Brosnan Bond films. And even more interestingly, 
In 97, Bjork will participate in David Arnold's Shaken and Stirred album. It never actually made it onto the record, but if you look at it there, you'll be able to find Bjork and David Arnold covering You Only Live Twice, which kind of fulfills, I think, Bjork's Bondian ambitions or Bondian leanings. It's a great record. It's fun. It's better than I remember it being. It's enjoyable, and it's it's really full of... It kind of goes back to what the sugar cubes were doing it's really joyous it's a just a fun record that hints at potential artistic merit and intrigue to come post literally explodes out of your headphones and i use that word quite purposefully i do mean literally those first three seconds of this album and the kind of opening track for that matter are a statement of intent for Bjork. They are sonically, lyrically, and conceptually powerful and big. It's so huge, that initial kind of explosion that happens at the start of Army of Me. And it's just announcing, you know, Bjork is here and she's going to fuck everything up quite deliberately, but retaining her adorable kind of pixie-ish manner with a bit of help from people like Graham Massey and Tricky and Nellie Hooper and Howie B. Given the kind of maybe questionable status of debut is it a novelty or is it the first sparks of genius post kind of had to be spectacular to warrant giving her more attention at this point thankfully for all of us it was floaty moments like isabel and headphones and possibly maybe great track absolutely juxtaposed with stuff that's like really heavy distorted groovers like army of me which should eventually go on and do with skunk and Nancy and enjoy another great track but the highlight and perhaps one of the highlights of her career not just this album but her career generally is hyper ballad hyper ballad is perhaps bjork's big first really interesting moment of kind of artistic vision that feels like the one that's maybe the most well formed on this record if you want to fight me on the genius of Hyperballad, I will meet you outside the school gates at 3pm. Bring your dodgy cousin if you need to. I will take you all on. If you need to fall in love with it, try the live version from the 2002 DVD um, that's performed with a full orchestra and like Xena Parkins and Matt Moss. Um, it's basically everything you need in your life. But there is also a couple of issues with this record. There is the sticky problem of it's so so quiet i hadn't quite realized how animo how much animosity was kind of aimed at this track i'd always hated it for the kind of advertisement riddle populism and overplay that it got and but i also kind of assumed that most people liked it and weirdly it seems to be the track that most people still associate with bjork fortunately it's really unrepresentative of what she goes on to create. Yes, there's probably a bit of stank left on her from her days in Glinglow with the jazz band, but thankfully, it's a kind of little one-off jazz moment that doesn't really get revisited in the rest of her career. Um, it's sort of an aberration, and she never really delves back into this sort of iffy territory that sounds like Count Basie on Bath Salt. Overall, Post is the moment where Bjork lands. Not only does debut kind of announce her, but Bjork solidifies what she's doing in Post. 
telegram. This is the moment where all the pedants are going to come out and go, oh, it's not a proper album. I don't care. Telegram, because of the way that Bjork presents it, is perhaps her most important record to date at this point. This is the point where Bjork breaks with anything that sits in the kind of rock or post-punky canon. By releasing Telegram, she deliberately posits, like positions herself as an artist and a dance artist. It's thought-provoking. It was working with people like Evelyn Glennie and Brodsky Quartet. And she's distancing herself from the 80s and 90s indie of the Sugar Cubes. She's not just throwing out a few white labels. She's actively drawing a line in the sand here. Um, and although this is a remix record, it's clearly been really beautifully curated with a lot of care and sincerity. And it's captivating. The version of Hyperballad on this should make you weep with joy. The way that the Brodsky Quartet make the sound of like seagulls as they kind of swoop past just from violins and the kind of the way that they tell stories through instrumentation is second to none. Dillinger remixes Cover Me and it's so like 1996 Metalheads records. It's stunning. Bjork and Tricky get together and do... Um, a really super duper heavy remix of Enjoy or Hyper Ballad. It's slightly misprinted whether you've got record or you've got CD. Um, but they remix as Further Over the Edge and it is this kind of heavy as fuck, kind of beating industrial dance music. And there's this kind of beautiful um, remix of Headphones on there as well by Phase, which is just really it takes this kind of quite interesting sort of ambient tone to it um i think that telegram is perhaps the most important and seismic record she's put out up to this point in her career and the music on it stands on its own as a great record <laughs> Homogenic, let's just go fully personal. This is one of my absolute favourite Bjork records. I think it's stunning. It's it's so beautifully crafted. And after kind of these forays into all these different areas, like in post, how there's no kind of consistent sound world in post, and Telegram is just all over the shop. Homogenic is perhaps her most consistent record today. It actually feels like a complete, almost, concept album, something that Bjork's going to kind of play with a lot in the future. Sonically, the palette she uses for this, which is a little bit of a throwback to Cover Me on Post, this sonic palette establishes itself from the get-go with Hunter, with that kind of rolling, thrumming uh kick drum pattern and these kind of like squeaky strings and these kind of odd pads and these kind of rolling electronics and the kind of unpredictableness of some of the synths and some of her vocal lines and it's as deep as Bjork's got up until this point the entire record I think is pretty sublime kicking off with Joga, Yoga, however you want to pronounce it written about the volcanic landscape of Iceland and her love for that landscape 
um, is this kind of gigantic trip hop esque orchestral number with these kind of filtered, um, luscious, just oh, oh, I can't do words. The, the string parts in it are just incredible. Unravel sees her doing this kind of beautiful vocal overlay with herself that's kind of reminiscent of Anchor Song. Bachelorette is another kind of second dip into the pool of James Bond. All neon-like has this kind of instrumentation that she's dug up from almost history when she's playing with the glass harmonica, um, which was meant to send you insane. That's a story for another podcast, I think. And Five Years is this kind of mantra about the emotional inefficiency of boys, which I can absolutely attest to. Um, immature is kind of fun and a last bit of trip-hop and Pluto is kind of reminiscent of the time she's been spending with Alec Empire and the Atari Teenage Riot lot in Berlin and then of course we kind of finish with All is Full of Love which is arguably again one of Bjork's most well-known pieces because of that classic video um, of Bjork Robot making out with Bjork Robot Robot and so we kind of get this album that's sort of warm and cold and cuddly and spiky all at once but it all makes sense as well and that's perhaps where the kind of genius of homogenic comes from i I can't think of a, a particularly bad song on this record i think it's great so bjork has matured hugely over the past album or two Gone are those kind of angry, petulant shouts, and they've been replaced with like harps and choirs and strings and glockenspiels and these kind of glitchy beats. In Vespertine, Matt Moss take over some of the production duties, but Bjork was kind of deeply involved in the production as well, dealing with amplified microbeats, so like just the, the tapping and clicking of fingers and these kind of tiny sounds that she's amplified and expanded to kind of create this huge texture with. But I think like the titles give away what she's going for here when we've got titles like Frosty and Aurora and Pagan Poetry. It's this kind of delicate, bright record that's obsessed with ice and snow, but it's never really cold. It's never really loveless. It's full of kind of kindness and warmth, and it's, it's, it feels perhaps her most sincere record today. It's kind of almost motherly in the way that it kind of cares about the listener and it's sort of sometimes yes it does kind of fall into these kind of soporific hazes but then there's other moments of quite sincere heightened emotion that are really notable um unison makes me weep like a child um hidden place is again a strong opener but kind of harks back a little bit to hunter from the previous record um stuff like cocoon is one of the most cleverly recorded pieces of music I've ever come across. Put your headphones on for that one. Um, And Pagan Poetry is perhaps another slightly Bondian number just about. But there's kind of tracks on here that don't get much attention. Stuff like Heirloom, really upbeat with kind of these little tiny jungle breaks in the background. And you almost get moments of kind of electro clash in there. It's beautiful. It's a, a kind of a great track with with oh, it's a great record with sun in my mouth and yeah. As I'm sure you are about to hear, 
when we get into the main discussion, I think this is the dog's tuxedo, the cat's pyjamas and the bee's knees. Hello there, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms. You have been listening to the voice of Liam Maloney guiding us through the early part of Björk's main solo career uh, or sort of the mid-phase of her career in general. Uh, still with us is Nick, Jeffrey and Liam. Okay, so in the last episode, uh, you talked about how the sugar cubes were winding up and Björk was already moving into a, a sort of dancey area. There are some remixes that charted and it looked like this was a natural place for her to go. Despite the fact that we finished with Glinglow, which is a sort of big jazz, big jazz thing, which basically didn't seem to fit with the direction she was going. Although obviously there will be some things that tie up later on. So let's start with debut, her actual debut. Official debut, I guess, rather than the 16, 15 year old Bjork, whichever that was. Um, and Liam, this was 1993, yeah? Middle of 1993, this one. Okay, I've got a quick question before we start. Um, she's stayed with the same label, right? Yes. One Little Indian were kind of a, a mainstay for Bjork for a very, very long time, yeah. Yeah, and. Um, Oh, didn't they change their name to One Little Independent when people realized that One Little Indian was a horrific name for a record label? Yes, they did. Yeah, I noticed that it was One Little Indian, One Little Indian, One Little Independent. Um, just to tag that back in, after a very fast Google there, um, they only changed their name last year, middle of last year. Oh. Yeah, to one little independent, which is quite shocking, actually, as a kind of consequence of um, the George Floyd protests and uh, oh. all of that kind of morass of stuff that was going on. So, yeah, a little bit late in the day, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, sort of shocking, right? Um, hadn't expected that to be a long time ago. I mean, when they changed the name of Agatha Christie books back in the 80s. Yeah, it's a bit weird. Um, anyway, she's on One Little Independent, 1993, debut. Liam, what happened? How did this one come about? Who was she working with? Etc. Etc. So to get to this point, you actually have to kind of almost go back to Glinglow to have this make sense. Like, Glinglow is, if we kind of discount that that first little Bjork record with the kind of cutesy production and, you know, 11-year-old Bjork on it, Glinglow is kind of the first time she gets to be front and center almost soloist she's like the lead vocalist in a little jazz trio great okay um, and during the time she's done Glinglow, glow while the sugar cubes are gently collapsing like a cake in a cupboard she is going back and forth to the uk to do bits of work with kind of some of the one little indian one little independent people and also guesting with people like graham massey and the 808 state boys graham massey of course the kind of Leading light in 808 State, but also a bit of a Manchester hero because he was partially involved in the setup of Eastern Block Records for the dweebs that are listening in. Um, but she's kind of shout out to Eastern Block. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 no, they don't need shout outs. I've put so much money over that counter over the past few years. Um, they, they should pay me. Um, do you need more sponsors? <laughs> more sponsors? Any sponsors would do, frankly. <laughs> Oh, and one thing, people people who were not 
on this call uh after the last episode people realized i love calipos calipos i pronounce it apparently wrong if if cali if calipo want to sponsor us and send me a box of calipos or calipos i'd be very very happy thank you very much um all right sorry carry on Liam. we need to get into that pronunciation sometime um, anyway, she's heading back and forth to the UK a lot. She's working with 808 State. She guests on their Excel album on QMart and Oops. And she's kind of around with an interesting bunch of people like Danny Siciliano's around, who we kind of forgot about now, which is a shame. Nikki Holloway's around. And she's kind of getting immersed into dance music in the UK. Um, and while this is happening, she's also dropping off some of her own demos to the people at One Little Indian, One Little Independent. Um, even though she's still got a whole record for the Sugar Cubes to deal with, that final Sugar Cubes record, um, which is just kind of a contractual, just get it dealt with and get rid of it. What year um, was the, what year was the last Sugar Cubes record? Ninety two. So this was pretty hard on the heels of that. Of yeah. That record. But it's kind of interesting. Like she's out in the UK doing this dancey stuff in nineteen ninety one. Goes back does the Sugar Cubes. The Sugar Cubes then release a dance record, and then she comes back to the UK and kind of sets herself up as, I don't think it's a push to say, like a dance artist when she releases debut on One Little Indian. Yeah. Because she's working with those people like Nellie Hooper, the cheesemonger that we now know was Nellie Hooper, people like Graham Massey, and this kind of really interesting group of producers and kind of influences. And this is where she begins to like run into Goldie and hangs out with Nikki Holloway. And it's this kind of experimental pop, dancey art album that could be potentially a novelty at this point in time. She could just be this weird little, to use the word we were saying last week, this weird little Icelandic pixie who's just kind of come over and released this weird record and a bit of a flash in the pan novelty or she could be someone who's got some legs and at this point we don't really know. I think at that point, I mean, because obviously uh, we were talking about just before we sort of started, um, her reception and her visibility in the UK and the US in the early days seemed significantly different. I mean, the enemy and stuff like that loved her, welcomed her with open arms. Um, I believe Rolling Stone gave it like a two out of five. I think like it was like, what is this cheap electronic tack? Um, it seemed like maybe she was working with a lot of British producers and the sound of the early 90s to mid 90s was going down a trip hop sort of path with your Portis heads, your massive attacks and your trickies and whatnot. And she seemed to be going and fitting nicely into this. Jeffrey, as far as you're aware, I mean, yeah. in the US in 93, I mean, 93 was what? Tail end of grunge, right, girl? It was interesting because she did appear on her the human behavior video, which is how I discovered her. I knew I was a fan of the Sugar Cubes, but I didn't even make the connection that Bjork was from the Sugar Cubes wow. until later. And I saw the human behavior video, and thought, what is this? Like at the end of the video, she plants the Russian flag. I was like, oh, this is some weird Russian artist or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it would show on 120 minutes, which would show all the alternative and grunge albums and or grunge bands and artists like that, and. But she was, I think she got popular, but it was sort of an underground popular, like sort of like college rock or something like that, where she she got big, but she didn't get enormous at this point. And she, um, the scene is probably not receptive to Icelandic pixie. Mm -hmm. Okay, so she was probably doing the big shows, and she was, um, I'm just like 
What? Sorry, I guess it wasn't. Oh, did you see her? But it wasn't. But it wasn't. Oh my God! Have you gotten the Bjork album? Right. Exactly. It's just for. And the video, that video, it was uh, Michael, Michael, Michel, Michel Gondry. Michel Gondry. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that sort of fits, right? A nice sort of narrative in his career. I mean, which all went very surreal, became a very surreal and amazing filmmaker later on. Okay. So, before we continue, I mean, I know it's a dance album, right? But when I was re-listening to Human Behavior, all I could hear was that if you change the vocals a little bit and you improve the guitar a bit later on, it's a track from like Hail to the Thief or something by Radiohead. It's a fucking Radiohead track. Uh, Tribally drums, brooding sort of menacey bass, and sort of slightly not a normal sort of vocals. That's all I could hear was Hail to the Thief by Radiohead. It was a weird little... Sorry, Liam. No, no, on that, and I always, I always had like a group of friends who were into, when I was much younger, were into this kind of like, what you would call vaguely alternative thing at the time. And there was loads of people who love Radiohead. And there was loads of people who love Bjork, but it was very rare that those two people coincided. It was a very, m- m- Bjork particularly was very Marmite at this point, I think. Yeah, I think, I think definitely. So I mean, you've got some people who like the sugar cubes. And so that sort of gave her credence. They gave her credence, you know I mean? Saying, no, 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 no. She's, she's got into credentials. But you also have people going, what? Venus is a boy? Uh, this does not fit in with my long hair indie shuffle dance and my invisible tambourine on the on the indie dance floor. It's hard to dance to Bollywood, isn't it? When you're you're used to <laughs> the kind of grungy tones of I don't know, in utero or something like that. No, no, totally. Um, yeah, okay. Um, Nick, where are you on debut? Um, I, I mean, now I love it. I love it. I think at the time, probably initially, I was a, I was a slight Bjork skeptic. Uh, but I had friends who really liked the album, and and I kind of. But it's one of those albums like I, I probably had it on cassette and listened to it, or it was being played a lot. And now when I go back, I listen to it. It feels like it's a. It's almost like a greatest hits tape. It's it. it all the songs are huge. Um, you know, it's it's such. I, I mean, my impression now is just, it's it's such an extraordinarily good album. Um, and I was just a bit naive at the time, probably, and didn't pick up on that until later. Yeah, I think that's I, fair enough. I mean, the fact that there was so much other stuff, particularly for indie kids, certain area, certain time. I mean, there were the bridges, through maybe grunge and the rise of Britpop. Uh, maybe was some sort something was going on. Um, yeah, well, that said, I mean, so I was about nineteen, twenty, about when this came out, and I was. I, it was probably a little bit later that I started to sort of move, as everybody did, probably from from sort of listening to kind of indie rock kind of stuff towards more dance music. And these are the albums that kind of eased that transition because it was, it, it, it kind of played to everybody, you know, and, and, and that was the sort of thing I was thinking about it is that it, it had, it achieves the rare feat of appealing to kind of all the kind of groups of uh, people at that time without seeming compromising, you know, it doesn't, it's a totally uncompromising record and yet it kind of appeals to everybody. Um, yeah, that wasn't on the, I mean, okay, Jeffrey, you might not be aware of this, um, but there was a year in the UK, uh, somewhere in the 90s, early mid 90s, that everyone in the UK suddenly loved acid jazz. Acid jazz turned up. Um, what's it? No, it's later. No? Yeah, brand new heavy. It's about 
That was about 90, so we saw two albums in by that point, 93, 94. Now maybe, maybe Every indie then. kid would suddenly go to Acid Jazz Nights, and we loved Acid Jazz for one year, and then we sort of realised and woke up and had this ama- amazing... Yeah. I, I, I'd like to say that wasn't true, Ewan, but I do own three records by Corduroy. Ooh. <laughs> I do this quite a lot. Uh, they're, they're, I can never remember when the Acid Jazz year was. I should maybe do it with Zoe's on, because she'd get it right. Jeffrey? Well, I think it's interesting where uh, Nick is talking about how it has something to appeal to everybody. And you talk, uh, you refer to it as a dance album. And to me, um, there, there's a quote from her where she said when she was younger, she would love playing, Bjork would love playing Jimi Hendrix albums for her grandparents and take Miles Davis albums to her conservative music conservatory and make people listen to things they wouldn't normally listen to. And this album has songs like Someone in Love, which is almost like the precursor to Oh, It's So Quiet. Or um, One Day, which is just this really sort of sweet song, which can be interpreted multiple ways. And uh, Come to Me, which has that sultry jazz line to it. Um, So I really do think this album just, it it has a lot in it. It it really goes all over the place. It's definitely fresh. I mean, I mean, she's obviously, she's young and fresh faced, but it feels even listening to it again over the last few days. It feels like a really fresh, vibrant, alive thing. There's a lot of joy in it, I think. Like, there is a huge amount of kind of enthusiasm, and it feels, considering where she's come from, and like this kind of contractual obligation of the Sugar Cubes to come and do this 18 months after that, feels like quite this kind of big, joyous, celebratory moment. And you can definitely hear that excitement in it, like big time sensuality. Some of like the remixes of that as well, just these huge, meandering, like 10 minute bangers. Um, that are just ultimately enjoyable to throw yourself around on the dance floor to. Yeah. Um, and she kind of situates herself well within that kind of old underground culture as well, I think. Um, even though it was, like you say, an incredibly big record. Yeah, actually, I mean, if you look at all, 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 the, all the lists of the greatest albums of the 90s, blah, 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 um, I'm pretty, pretty sure most record sites, probably not Pitchfork, but you know, Pitchfork. Um, this album's in there. I mean, it's probably not the only Bjork album in there, but yeah. it's definitely in there. And I, th- I think you're right with the word joy. And I, I think that's part of the magic of Bjork is she can express pure joy without it being cloying or syrupy. And mm. it feels like it's coming from an honest place. Like even on Big Time Sensuality, those grunts that she throws in. It's like, I don't know my future after this weekend. And then she does this. <laughs> I laugh every time I hear that. <laughs> And I was just going to go back to the brooding thing you were talking about. So there are these kind of brooding tones buried in there, though. There is a like this kind of little bit of menace when it comes to stuff like human behavior. Always kind of unsettles me as a starting track. It's a great tune, don't get me wrong, but there's something quite odd about it. Like, I'm not quite sure where it sits. It's quite fast for a bit of trip-hop, and it's a bit slow for a bit of dance. And it's kind of a, it almost, on the, from like the get-go, you're on, a, on the back foot a little bit. And then Aeroplane's a bit strange as well. Has that great then, jazz to it. And then you get the re-release, which I think they only did six months later, they did the reissue, which has Play Dead on it, which I think is one of Bjork's best tracks. And everyone kind of forgets about Play Dead. It's her James um, Bond theme. It, she has several it, James Bond themes, doesn't she? <laughs> it is, exactly. And like there's these little hints of like Bondian kind of melodies, especially in stuff like Aeroplane with that kind of jazz bass. Like you say, it's really and it's a fun if Oh, if Bjork had soundtracked one of the Pierce Bosnan bronze, Pierce Bosnan 
bonds. God, that's hard to say. Yeah. I've not even had a drink yet. Um, if she'd soundtracked a PBB in the 90s, <laughs> that's the soundtrack for it. That played Ed Tune, which is just this kind of sweeping majesty. But you'll get in a few albums again anyway with yoga and stuff like that, or yoga, maybe. Oh, I was just say because uh, the one we haven't mentioned it, but we did talk about a little bit in the last episode was um, "There's More to Life," oh. which is, I mean, because the whole thing that's going on with that tune, with the you know the being recorded in the bathroom and stuff, it's it's brilliant. I love it, but also just lyrically, I think it's a sort of cake and eat it moment because you've got all that sort of joy of it being like you know being the big uh, another big club anthem. And yet it's also sort of about how there's more to life than this. You know, it's setting out a stall that like, she's not just about this. And and that's, I don't know, part of the charm of it, I think, is, is something quite exciting about that. I think there was, I think when I was, when I first put it on again a week or two ago or two weeks ago, my, my wife came in yeah. at the bit where, well, you know, there's that bit, she's going into the bathroom uh, I'm actually like, my God, it's such a 90s thing. The idea of like yeah. a music video and sound goes quiet because in the video, she's in the mm. bathroom. And so the sound goes quiet on the actual uh, recording as well. And it was just really, really lovely 90s sort of memory. You can picture it all, right? But it's, it's hard to imagine many other artists pulling that off, though. It, it, on the record, it works. It's not annoying. It's not weird. It doesn't feel out of place. It really, really works. Okay, let's move on. We're going to move on from debut, um, which if you look at people's rankings of, of top Bjork albums, this does well, but the next one does significantly better. And for some of our listeners, this is going to be their favorite, um, which is Post. And it all sort of kicks in with Army of Me. I mean, uh, for me, it's bigger. There's more in there. It was massively successful. Um, I mean, I've got some things to say about it in a bit, but I'm going to go up to Liam first. Um, post. I mean, this is the natural step up, right? Um, it's, it's a necessary step up. So the thing I find quite revealing about a lot of this is that um, I'm a huge Grace Jones fan, and Grace Jones only starts to get interesting when she starts recording at Compass Point Studios. And post is the moment where Bjork does exactly the same. Um, and so it kind of ups the stakes a little bit. She kind of turns from being this kind of novelty, this kind of curiosity as an artist, which arguably Grace Jones is a great comparison for, and becomes this really quite significant, ugh, I hate this word, creative. Um, Does she have content yet? She has content. She's a creative. Um, there's synergy and other things going on in the. Um, but she becomes this kind of quite legitimate artist by doing something like going to Compass Point. Um, and she's working with people who, in retrospect, you know, they might have been fairly unknown at the time or fairly flash in the pan at the time, but in retrospect, were huge. So working with like Goldie's in there, Nelly Hooper is back again, Howie B, slightly forgotten, but Howie B's there, Great Masses kicking around, Tricky, arguably one of the more in arguably one of the more interesting voices coming out of trip hop at the time, hanging out with people like Portishead and she's about to get engaged to Goldie, I think at this point, um, for a very short period of time. So she's kind of surrounded herself with arguably probably the most interesting people in dance music at this moment in time. And 
decides to follow up what is quite a joyous, happy record with something that isn't so much as a kiss on the cheek as a black eye. It's just like the beginning of this record, when you get Army of Me at the start, you get this little noise and then just this explosion of energy. Yeah, what are you saying? If, uh, if I, industrial Army oh, of Me was a really industrial mm. track. What yeah. a weird way to start a record as well. Like a, a really brave way to start a record with these kind of like chugging drums and this kind of, yeah, it, it's a great record. And that's kind of Massey's influence and the kind of Manchester industrial thing kicking in there and then there's a bit more of like London club culture in there but still having these weird moments in it um that you kind of got on the first record like I don't know Isabel's a really quite an unusual thing like nowadays we're kind of used to stuff like that but at the time oh go on you would just not agree I'm not saying I like <laughs> it well no no I mean but I find that I find that Isabel was a song that seemed to be written just to use is and Isabel as as the <laughs> same thing. Oh, I've got this idea. I'm going to call it Isabel. I'm going to say is. If you're listening, go is Abel. Ah, oh, brilliant. And then I'll just make a, a song. That's one of my favorite songs by her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, I think people genuinely look at me like I have incredulous, idiotic ideas. I don't know. I just found Isabel a bit trite. I feel like if we're gonna. If like you could go into this record and exclude any track from it, the track we need to not discuss <laughs> is It's Oh So Quiet. Because that's it's so apart from everything else that she's ever done. And that's the only thing people know. If you don't know Bjork, you know It's Oh So Quiet. Well, no. It's not, it's not part, apart from everything she's ever done, because it fits in. If that was on Glinglow, it's a perfectly it, natural it does, fit, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oh, incidentally, when, when this first came out, when Army of Me first came out, I wasn't really paying much attention to it, but I never really knew what she was singing. Like, for the first, I don't know, 50 listens. Um, I didn't realize she was singing Army of Me because it was just like, Army of Me. And I never really was paying attention to the song. And now, and then I, yeah, I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. Well, it's a weird way to sing the song, the words. And I just thought it was part of the lyrics. And then, yeah. Anyway, weird delivery of it. And Jeffrey, I'm apologizing for criticizing anything in your favorite Bjork album. So I will come to you. Um, debut, this happy, fresh faith thing uh, for you. Was this happy, fresh faith thing? And also in America as well. I mean, in terms of reception, was it, as Liam said, like a punch in the face? Uh, how was it in your ears? To my ear, I, I, I absolutely love this album. And like you said, the industrial influences, probably when this came out is when I was deepest into my Nine Inch Nails skinny puppy fandom. And so it was fitting right in with that, with songs like, uh, I mean, Army of Need That and Enjoy, which is just a perfect industrial song, just absolutely perfect industrial song. And um, just the whole album for me sits so well. And this is when we're getting, I, I think one thing we haven't really talked about yet is Bjork is a lyricist. And I think she is really solid as a lyricist on this album and the next one. Um, just... I, I love her line. She's she's almost like a one-liner. Your rescue squad is too exhausted. It's just one of the coldest lyrics anyone's ever uttered. And um, or uh, who knows what's going to happen? You, lottery or car crash, or you could join a cult. Um, <laughs> I love lines like that. Um, oh yeah, lyrically, even from the sugar cubes onwards, there's just some crazy stuff that you would not hear from anybody else. I mean, for sure. 
I did I did take some notes to prepare for this conversation a little bit. My note on it's oh so quiet is just shut up. It's fun. It's just it's a fun song. <laughs> it's not hurting anyone, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's um, it's a minute, a minute too long. Um, right. I have this thing I, I about movies, and all movies are twenty minutes too long. I mean, pretty much any movie you can slice out twenty minutes, and it's a much better film. And I was listening to this album again recently. Maybe it's because it was in the car. I guess um, I was just echoing. It. I was like, "Oh, it's over." <laughs> oh, that was fun. I remember that song. It was massive in the UK. Yeah, it sort of charted. Did really well. It was sort of everywhere. And then I think, "Oh, the song's over." And then about a minute later, I'm hearing "Really Big Riot." Again, I'm just, is this still repeating itself? I mean, just finish a bit ago, man. I mean, it's like the end of the movie AI. That was a great ending and then just sort of went on forever. Um, vocally, by the way, on that track for, um, on that track for, for, for UK people mainly, if anybody remembers Daisy Chainsaw, I get a lot of the Daisy Chainsaw vocal stylings on It's Also Quiet. Um, and, and these are reference points that have just whizzed past me. <laughs> Daisy Chainsaw were, was basically this one hit. Sorry if you're listening, but I don't imagine you are. Yeah. Indie band with Love Your Money. Love Your Sound. Love Your Love 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 Your Money. And anyway, um, it's out there. Go and listen to it or don't. But yes, Jeffrey. And I don't, I don't know about her reception in America at this point. Um, she was still considered, I mean, it's also quite got played to death here as well. But... I don't know if people still picked up on her. She was still considered sort of this quirky, weird artist. And so she got popular, but I don't think she ever really hit with the mainstream here uh, at that point. It's that reason that I really dislike it so, so quiet, because that kind of novelty-ness kind of undoes the really interesting work that she does here and kind of maintains that pixiness, that silliness, that fun. That, don't get me wrong, it's great, but... It kind of it it does a disservice to some of the stuff she's doing here. I think. Yeah, I mean, I I hated that song in the nineties. Really, really hated it. So the I real surprise for me going back to this album was actually, you know, I was dreading it. And then when it came on, I was like, eh, it's not so bad. <laughs> and I think it was just because it was it was all the time being played everywhere in the nineties, and it was and it's it was just annoying. And it's like you say, it's not really representative of the rest of her work. So it just ends up, and it's interesting what you're saying about uh, debut on its own almost could have been like a novelty thing if it, if it had only been that. It's more this one song. If if you you know if Bjork had disappeared after Post and all she was remembered for was Oh So Quiet, that would be so unrepresentative of her best work. Absolutely. That would be a real shame, actually, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah she yeah. just disappeared off into obscurity at that point. It's basically 1.54 in the morning on a Friday night in indie music nights across, across the UK. And they play that, the novelty song, the one where everyone who's drunk who, or everyone who's trying to pull, they sort of come up and they dance. And maybe it's, you know, it's, we're, all, we're doing it ironically and it's a bit of Fred Astaire or, 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 or whatnot or something like Kylie. <laughs> yeah. um, and this, this became the novelty song for like, a year, maybe. You couldn't end an indie night anywhere without it. Oh, so quiet would come up and people would drunkenly go on the dance floor and, put that and go, shh, to each other. Did they do that? Did they oh, really no, do no, that? No, 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 no. They, they really, really did. Anybody? Oh, Just me? <laughs> anyway, um, I was listening to it, obviously, recently, and there was... I don't know, some of the production on this album uh, just seemed a bit more dated. Uh, whereas 
I know I found debut was still fresh, but a lot of this sounded very flatter and dated of its time. That's the Nelly Hooper influence. Like as a as someone who can compose and create, it's great, but very much locked into that time period. Like violently happy and um big time sensuality, those ones on debut were did sound dated to be honest when they dropped, realistically. Um, but it just happens to be that they've got quite a nice retro feel to them now, perhaps, that we all kind of revel in again. But you know, not all clangers from Hooper. Hyper Ballad hasn't aged a day. I could listen to that till the cows come home. It's, I, I still think it's some of the best work, actually, Hyper Ballad. It's, it, it breaks yeah, I love me. that. Um, this is the one on with headphones, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, headphones are astounding. It's astounding as a track, astounding as an album closer. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I think I prefer debut. I, I decided over the last week and I tried to balance between the two and I kept flip-flopping, um, but I enjoyed debut more and I'm probably going to go back to that one more. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this thread going. Um, debut was the Benz. And this one is sort of okay computer. And Nick, you can pull that face or you're like, I'm continuing this over the next two albums. Really? And then you'll realize oh, I have Jesus maybe Christ. something. Um, so <laughs> I, it's a really fair comparison and it does so, so for, well as you can. Exactly. <laughs> so for this episode, I was looking at it. I was thinking, okay, so we've got debut, sort of like the Benz. Um, and then post is a bigger album. Although for me, sounds a bit dated. Okay, yeah. So we've, we, we're in the okay computer territory here. And then I'm going to move on to essentially my favorite Radiohead album, um, which is Kid A, <laughs> in homogenic, homogenic um, which I have a lot of notes. Not yet, not yet. I underline the word you, amazing skipping five album, times. Man. We are skipping a record. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I forgot. Sorry. Um, totally forgot. We're going down the remix route. Um, well done. Well reminded. Uh, um. Yeah. So... Immediately off the back of post, she releases Telegram, which I, I hated the title of, particularly because it changes the meaning of the title of post, which really annoyed me. But that's fine. Um, but this, the reason I kind of include this, and we've kind of already, not purposely, but quite um, obviously harked back to the fact that she's coming out of a really um, interesting space where she's hanging out with like the Bristol lot who are kind of deep into trip hop and drum and bass and like tricky and massive attack and that lot. She's hanging out with what's happening in Manchester with kind of the Hacienda and 808 state and tricky and Goldie and coming over to Leeds with um, Mark Bell from LFO. And she's kind of really immersed herself in dance music culture. And, you know, the people producing on these records, pretty much dance music producers with the odd little exception, dance music producers. And so, remixing and dance music is part and parcel of who Bjork is, particularly at this early stage, and will always kind of stick around as well. Um, so she releases Telegram, which is actually her second remix album. There was a remix album for debut. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. The best mixes from the album debut for all the people who white label who something? Who don't buy white labels. Something? Yeah, a, a catchy title. But it's got like, <laughs> yeah, that first record's got like, um, remixes by Black Dog and Underworld and Andy Weatherall in his Sabres of Paradise guys and stuff like that. Um, and it's all right. It's fine. Um, arguably, some of the best remixes aren't actually on that um, from Telegram, uh, from debut even. But she releases Telegram, which is kind of her 
remix album where she actually takes over a little bit of control and is actively involved in some of the remixes that are going on here. So people she's got involved are like Brodsky Quartet, Howie B's back, Dillinger is back, which is crazy. Um, Graham Massey's back. So she's got these kind of interesting people coming in working with her. And I think that Telegram is a really quite beautiful record. And I think it is as beautiful, if not better, than Post. And I know I'm going to get stoned as I walk down the street for saying that, but I think it's a better record than Post. I, I don't know that you will by anyone here. I mean, I, certainly not by me. I, I really like this album. Um, it was probably the first original Björk album that I bought oh, uh, at the time. I mean, to put that in context, I was living in Poland and didn't have access to a lot of great new music. But the station, uh, Katowice station near where I lived, had these kiosks that sold cassettes and bananas. And I'd spent <laughs> a lot of time scouring the cassettes for anything that might, you know, rejuvenate my sorry tape collection that I'd taken with me to Poland. And this was one of the records I remember finding, and, I, wow. and it was a real joy to find this. And, and I loved it. But obviously, I'm putting that in the context just because part of my love of it was that it was in a context where I didn't have a lot of other new music. And I thought, I thought it was brilliant. And that's an interesting thing she does through her career. Because preparing for this, I went through and watched every live album chronologically. Wow. And it's really interesting to see how every tour, she changes the backup group and, and who's playing with her, where on the first tour, it's sort of uh, international instrumentalists from all around the world. And the second tour, she strips it down a bit more and just has an accordion player and uh, an insane drummer. I forgot who it was, a really good drummer. And then the third tour where she gets the string quartet and Mark Bell. And then it's just moving on from there. And then each tour, she'll play songs from the previous tour, rearranging them completely and really uh -huh. coming up with new ways to play those songs and hear those songs and express those songs. And I was going to say, going back to debut, the, one, the most shocking one was the very first the unplugged version of come to me where she has the jazz player and someone playing uh, wine glasses doing a very sultry version of it then on the very last tour her bitter divorce tour she plays it with a 40 foot movie screen and slugs copulating on the movie screen while she sings the song <laughs> <laughs> a very different feeling to that one copulating slugs <laughs> nobody else particularly nobody else who achieves success and was actually creating good music as well, would be doing that visually and artistically. Um, you might get some underground offbeat bands, uh, well, copulating slugs, but in terms of someone this major, I don't think there's anybody else that would do that, uh, who probably wouldn't get away with it. And I think it kind of comes down to the core that underneath all of this stuff, irrespective of how she treats the material, whether it's remix, a cover, a live thing, a kind of visual presentation, whatever it is, a good song that Bjork's written is a really good song. Mm. And there are these kind of weird little amorphous blobs that she can kind of twist and shape into whatever she wants to at that moment in time. And yeah, on those kind of, on those live tours, like the, the Vespertine tour, the way she treats some of that material is just oh, a little bit dreamy. Okay, well, we'll get back to that. Um, first, we have to do Kid A. Sorry. Yes. How much homogenic, homogenic, which is 1997. Um, for me, um, this for me is probably the album when, when she became something uh, proper and amazing, doing something nobody else would, would be able to create. This is that album. She creates something new rather than create something good. Um, it was also the other way. She seems to have a lot of issues. 
she seems to have had lots of issues with uh, paparazzi and crazy stalker fans and all this sort of thing. There are lots of things going on. But for me, I mean, as an album, we've got... I mean, Bachelorette is my number one track on the album. It's astounding. It's like, as an album, it's almost like a Joanna Newsom meets Post chill out uh, session club room at five o'clock in the morning, plus something no one's ever heard before. I mean, I uh, I, I said like, I, I wrote that's amazing, underlined it five times. I'd also, as we know in temporary fandoms, I, I love a short album and this, it's the shortest album. Ah. Yeah. And then um, how, how you talked about making that statement of going into the studio, working with, with certain people in post, embracing the dance and the electronic scene. Um, how did she evolve into this? That, that's a great question. So all this remix work, I think, is, it's, does set the scene a little bit for homogenic and kind of what comes after, which is kind of why I wanted to kind of lay the point a little bit. But it's kind of homogenic is maybe the point where she stops using other people's tonalities and kind of doing bits of homage and copying other styles and starts to generate something that is quite quintessentially Bjork. Like Hunter is something that is quintessentially Bjork here. It comes out of a really strange place, though, like you say, like with the stalkers and all this stuff. So she started the work at Made of Vale originally with a chap called Marcus Droves. Um, but after um, a, a very unwell man tried to send her a letter bomb and then killed himself, um, paparazzi descends, and she's already not a big fan of the paparazzi after that punch, the famous punch at the uh, during the post-tour, if you guys remember seeing that. Um, so like the airport, was it? Yeah, yeah. and she was just yeah, getting yeah. hassled by paparazzis, and so yeah, she... They were trying like, to photograph her, or interview her child, and that's yeah. a no-go yeah. zone. Yeah, I don't think anyone's particularly going, oh, isn't Bjork dreadful for punching paparazzi? Um, but So she uh, she's kind of essentially under, not house arrest, but she's locked in her house, terrified of paparazzis. Police have kind of stopped the post and all this other stuff. Um, and so she's essentially just kind of trapped in her house with this engineer, and they're working on this music together. Um, but they decide um, after her drummer for the post tour, a guy called Trevor Morais, who might be the drummer you're talking about. I can't remember. Um, possibly. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, he has an apartment with a kind of little studio attached in Malaga and just invites her to come stay. But I find that a really odd thing that she's goes to Spain to make homogenic, which is a really cold record, I think. Like, I think Spain, I think hot, I think kind of fiery and passionate. And this is, does have passion, but it's clinical and precise passion, not this kind of extravagant exuberant thing. I mean, not not everybody who comes to Spain puts flamenco guitar in their tracks. I mean, it's a bit of a... No, she's uh, in the middle of Malaga in the 90s. I feel like there is a... Well, I mean, as someone who lives in or near Malaga, um, I mean, I say, I think probably about 20 minutes away, if you drive into the hills from me, that's where Flood lives. So yeah, there are musicians and there's producers knocking about here. Um, but granted, now I want to hear Bjork's flamenco album. I don't. That would be incredible. <laughs> I've got nothing else to say. It's brilliant. I just think this is a fucking phenomenal album. Yeah, no, I mean, same here. I, I, I really like it. I mean, I think it's slightly less immediate than the earlier ones in that they've got the, the big pop numbers in the earlier albums. And here she's starting to move towards 
where she ultimately goes, which is the sort of slightly more soundscapey kind of stuff that she does. Um, but still, I mean, I mean, I love Hunter. It's a great track. And Bachelorette, you've already mentioned. So it's, it's got some big tunes on there still. Good stuff. Um, Jeffrey? Yeah, it, it's one of, one of my favorite by her. Probably, it might be my favorite. I change all the time between the first three albums. But this one where, like you said, it, it, she talks about how the rhythms came from the sounds of Iceland. She wanted to really capture the bubbling mud pits and the geysers and all the little nature sounds from around Iceland to inspire the rhythms. And then mixing that with the string section, I, I think is just wonderful. And there's a great uh, documentary about her. Um, um, I'm forgetting what it was called, the South Bank show, I think. And uh, they did a piece on her and they show her in Spain with the string section. And a little Spain did get in because the hunter, a little of that it was inspired by Bolero by Ravel. And so you get that dun, 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 dun in, in there. Oh, and so, yeah, good point. And, uh, they, it, and it's really interesting to watch her work with, do what she does where she sketches out the songs, but then she hires the experts of their instrument to help her flesh out what she has in her head to bring the song together. And I don't think she gets enough credit sometimes for being the composer that she is and how she really structures these songs. And a lot of people say, oh, well, no, this dance musician or this electronic musician did a lot of the work on the beats and stuff, but she really does develop a lot of those on her own and mm-hmm. has people just help her flesh them out a bit more. And Yeah, I mean, definitely. If you listen to it, even just up to now, ignoring what comes later, um, nobody could have a proper argument to say that it's not got her fingerprints all over everything, you know? Um, there's like an evolution of something really, really special. It's it's not a novelty act. We're going somewhere new here. Right. And I really, again, uh, any like alarm call, uh, alarm call is another great ending song by me with, I'm no fucking Buddhist, but this is enlightenment. That's just another great line. And then mm-hmm. a Pluto, which is another great Nine Inch Nails kind of song where when I saw them live or saw her do it live, it just exploded the entire um, uh, music hall that she was playing in. It just brought the house down when they did that one. Okay, look, I know I've labeled this point a little bit. Nick's going to roll his eyes, but I'm doing it for a reason. I made a comment about sort of Radiohead albums along the way, Ben's OK Computer, and this being Kid A. And... For me, Kid A is Radiohead's best thing. Um, also pointing out there was an OK Computer remix album, so that sort of fits in as well. However, she seems to do them all a year or two before Radiohead does. And Tom, even Tom York has come out recently and said that Bjork, there's some Bjork songs that are some of his favorite stuff. So he was probably being influenced by her. And this is the point I'm trying to get at. She's got to this electronic experimentalism with some new things going on before the millennium, which is sort of when other bands finally sort of cottoned on to it. She was a couple of years ahead of Radiohead, who I held up as, as, as a band that changes things. And then as we move into the next album, uh, Vespertine, I mean, Radiohead and Kid A, and then Amnesiac, which was, they sort of recorded at the same time. There was a lot of crossover stuff. It was more of the same, but less. It was great, but not as groundbreaking. We've got it again. I think moving four years later with Vespertine, we've got an album that is great, but it's not as groundbreaking, sort of. It's more of a, a companion piece to homogenic, homogenic, homo, homogen. I can't, I keep getting stuck over that word. Um, does it push the boundaries as much? I mean, it's more minimalistic and there's orchestral stuff. And I think it's nice. 
But I think after homogenic, oh my goodness, after homogenic, you can't go anywhere apart from down for a bit. I mean, people are probably going to disagree with me. I mean, everyone disagrees with me. Nick, you get to disagree with me first. Oh, excellent. I, uh, unfortunately, I don't. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's the first time <laughs> no, I've heard no, that. I, That's I, amazing. I like it. I think it's sort of, uh, again, starting to move more towards where she's going next. That's sort of more soundscapey. So there's less big tunes on this one, uh, which is what we'd come to expect from the earlier Björk. Um, but we're maybe starting the transition. This is where I get to use my line that we're starting to move from party Björk to arty Björk. Yeah, okay. I mean, there's definitely the transition to something else. I mean, Jeffrey, for you, was this a step in a different direction? More of the same different Björk? This was really different Björk for me. And it's an album I've struggled with over the years. And I want to like this album. Every time I listen to it, I get a little closer. And still, it's something about it where she's described her beats on this as she wanted to make insect noises and make it really small. And something about that small sound, and I think this and Medulla both, like people into ASMR must really like this stuff because just that close <laughs> noises into the microphone mm-hmm. that just, it, it makes me a little, it's like, like you read someone's diary and you wish you hadn't read their diary because you know too much about them now. And that's how I feel about Best for Team. Wow. <laughs> a nice. little bit. But each time I, but as I say, I get a little closer each time I listen to it. And I think she is doing some interesting things with her voice where she's not doing her big vocal style that I like, but she, I think she is experimenting for her where on Harm of Will, she does more crooning or on Cocoon, she gets a very vulnerable with that high pitched uh, range that she goes into on that song. Um, and there are still, I mean, I love Hidden Place. That's a really good, uh, great one. I think it starts out a little too, uh, the best song is first. And so for me, it kind of goes downhill from there a little bit. And, but Pagan Poetry kind of picks it up again as well. Um, but yeah, I still, I still struggle with this album, honestly. But I think, again, this is one where the live album opened it up for me, where I saw her with the Greenland uh, Women's Chorus and Metmos like walking on ice to make the ice, walking on ice noises and uh, the orchestra. And I think this is the first album of hers where I needed to see the live version to really hear the songs better. Okay, okay. I mean, before I did this, I went on to, to Reddit. I went on to the Bjork, the incredibly popular Bjork sub, subreddit. And they asked, basically, does anyone have any tracks that they think are underrated? And Harm of Will came up a lot, um, a, a significantly large amount of time. And uh, it's not up to you as well. I mean, yeah, it's a good album. I mean, if she had come after Post with this, my opinion would probably be different. I, just, I think it's... An astounding piece of work. It's just not uh-huh, uh, the peak that just came before. But Liam, this is why I came to you last because at the beginning you said how much you like this album. Narrative, Liam. Narrative. It's perfect. I. I it's. Um, this is the first time Bjork gets it. Bob on. Don't get me wrong. Like homogenic. Beautiful record, really well crafted, fits together. There's stuff in there that maybe like, you know, like Pluto's great track, but doesn't quite sit in context. This, everything is this kind of really considered, thoughtful kind of block of material. And I almost like it to the point where the idea of picking a track or even dividing this thing into tracks seems irrelevant. 
it's a work from start to finish. And there's just these beautiful little moments that pop out of it. The live show, um, the one at the Royal Albert Hall is perfection. Like with with Matt Moss like walking on ice and the Xena Parkins, I think it's on half at that time. And what Matt Moss are doing with the kind of gestural control. It's, oh, I could rant for a very long time about this. But um, my favorite... We have what? time. We have time. <laughs> my favorite track on this... Well, there's two. There's Unison. Um, long story short, I cried under a table once to Unison, just because it was a bit much for me. It just got me once. Um, it was a weeping child under a table. Um, Were you already under the table, or did you crawl under the table? I had to crawl under... I needed a little warm place to get to. Um, yeah. Track two on this, though, Cocoon. I, I teach Cocoon. Um, my first years as a, an example of how you marry the idea of music and lyrics and production. And the idea of Cocoon is genius. Like she's there. There's no echo, no reverb on her voice whatsoever. And you get all the, like all the kind of spit in her mouth. And it's as if she's right up against you. You're essentially, it's a song about two people having sex and I'm making love, I suppose. Um, and it's essentially you and Bjork in bed together and she's talking directly at you. It's so personal and so uncomfortable that it's genius. I've just, I could, I've got infinite time for this record. I think it is an absolute work of art and it is the first time Bjork really achieves that pinnacle. It happens again later, but this is the first time it really hits. Sorry, I'll, I'll, try and, I'll try and dial it down a bit. I need to chill on it. <laughs> no, not at all. It's great. I would probably say that's a perfect time to wrap up this episode. We have gone through Bjork's growth from Dance Dance Pixie, I guess, into something unique and groundbreaking. She's, she's becoming, she's creating art. I guess now multi-layered art, which is something that not many other people have ever been able to pull off. She's ahead of Radiohead in the game on almost every album. So, okay, Nick, I don't carry on with this in the next episode. I sort of run out here, kind of. And um, for at least one of our panels, she ends this episode on a high with a perfect record to cry under a table to. Although, sadly, I sort of wish Cocoon was that record just because of narrative and cocoons and things like that. Somebody stopped me talking. Anyway, we will be back in the next episode. We will continue looking through the work of Björk. The work of Björk. There'll be a slightly different change of panel again. Uh, Jeffrey, it has been fantastic having you on for the first time. Please come back at some point in the future, maybe to do The Damned. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been ace. It's been great. It's been ace. What year is this? 1985. Um, anyway, thank you ever so much again and for telling us we're all wrong because a little dissent is always worth worthwhile, Liam. Nick. Cheers. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye. <laughs>
lives alongside ours at Beat Rehab. Go and check it out. Thank you to my sensibly abstinent co-host Ewan for chairing the discussion and cutting together the shows, and to Jonathan Fisher for our theme music. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review or recommend us to your friends. And if you really enjoy the show, you can help keep it going by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tempfans. We'll be back next week for the concluding installment of Bjork's discography. Until then, I'm Nick Hilditch. You know there's more to life than this. <laughs>